Coffee Break Collection 15, The World of Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. Work Which a Woman is Doing in the Slums. Of aristocratic birth and associations, she devotes all her time and effort to the poor and unfortunate of New York's East Side. No respecter of creed or sect, she carries sympathy and cheer wherever she finds it is needed. Tombs prison, a favorite field. There is a thick crust around the cream of society in New York that stretches from the rims on either side almost to the middle, where can be found what we are pleased to call material for missions. In these benighted quarters are to be found the outcasts, according to the version of some mission workers. And yet, those of us who are outcasts, in disrepute with those who have acquired a reputation for moral probity, must have something that is hopeful in us, must surely belong to the same human family. The trouble is to get the Pharisees to admit who are the Pharisees. The list would be as long and as distinguished as the one contained in that intensely interesting volume called Who's Who, but the publicans and the sinners have not been so favored with individualities that resound their deeds. You hear of them only through the settlement workers, the mission agents, the charitable societies, and then only in the manner of patronizing pity, of deep regret, as painful examples of depraved human nature. Occasionally, once or twice in a lifetime, you run across a man or a woman who has an almost divine sense of Christianity and insists upon a respectful appreciation of the fallen woman and the fallen man. If through some catastrophe the population of New York were brought to the necessity of eradicating class distinctions, there would be no room for the Pharisees. They would have to raise the publicans and sinners to their august level, or starve alone. In the meantime, the burden of the social problem is upon the outcasts, except for the help they may receive from some distinct individuality in the person of a man or a woman ordained by providence to understand them. There are many expensive failures in the assumption of aid to these outcasts, for the best that comes to them is something they achieve for each other, the sympathy of wrong for wrong, of hunger for hunger, of the starved for the starving. A Beautiful Personality in the Slums This only by way of preliminary introduction in order that the personality of a woman who is facing the problem alone may be made comprehensive. The fact that she is an aristocrat with a title may seem to add luster to her good deeds, but she herself does not see it that way. She goes into the slums and the prisons and the mission rooms an entire stranger to everyone. I only wish to help. It really makes no difference who I am, she says if they question her. And then she sings to them with a wonderful soprano voice that has evidently been trained by some great teacher, and goes, as quietly as she came, unknown. She is tall, dark, with exceptional beauty and unwearying vigor. Her manner, her voice, her assurance are indications of her birth and breeding, though she herself would be the last in the world to observe them. She has no affiliation with any charity or mission. She works silently, quietly by personal and private contact with the outcasts. Full of a womanly pity. In private life, she is the Countess von Bus-Ferrer. Her husband is a nephew of Archdeacon Ferrer, but the title is hers, not his. She is of the old German family of Bus-Zewaldek. It is very difficult for me to talk about myself, she said, 
but I begin to see that I cannot supply all the needs that I find in my work unless I let people know what I am doing and why I am doing it. The countess was modestly dressed, though richly, and while admitting that her personal income was hardly big enough to take care of the interests of the poor and the unfortunate, she indicated that what she had, she gave. But the material side of her practical charity was the least feature of importance in the talk, because, although the countess kept close to the effective means of immediate relief to the suffering, there was behind all this the remarkable fitness of woman for the task of indiscriminate pity and kindness. "'Why do you spend your time in the slums and the prisons?' she was asked. To the worldly wise, it would seem she is putting away from her a world of pleasure, such as is the inheritance of the fortunate ones only. The countess smiled with a slightly disdainful, tolerant smile at the question. "'It is my way of life,' she said. "'There are other ways and other duties, perhaps, but it is my way.' "'You have always cared for the outcasts?' "'You speak of very intimate things when you ask me that. "'I believe in kindness and love above all things, "'for the unfortunate, the poor, "'the outcast by conditions that have driven them to their misfortune. "'When I was a child, if a holiday was given me, "'I would ask my father to order the carriage, "'and after filling baskets with food and clothes, "'we would spend the day together, giving them away. "'But that is a very tender recollection. "'I cannot speak about it.' She brushed her eyes, suspiciously moist, with the tips of her fingers, but what some would put down to sentimentalism was merely evidence of a heart big enough for pity. The countess is not at all the type of the mission worker, charitable officer, or settlement agent, because she gives first aid to the injured without question and without criticism. "'You have no religious preference?' "'None whatever. I am quite impartial,' she said, with a slightly intolerant note in her voice for the creeds that open fresh wounds in the heart of charity. I can go to Catholic and Protestant, Jew and Gentile, with equal purpose. If a man is hungry, give him food. If he is cold, give him clothes. If he is ill, nurse his poor body back to health. But there is danger of being deceived in all this. Oh, yes, but there is no mistaking hunger and exposure and sickness, is there? Of course I do not tell them my name, and I do not ask them to pray for the things they need, nor do I insist upon being heard while I preach. Spurgeon was right when he said, If you go out to save souls, take your pocketbook with you. It is not their souls you are after. Perhaps it does not seem so, but, as I believe that there is innate good in everyone, there is really nothing to save. There is only to nourish and encourage and hearten the poor outcasts, who in their confusion have lost the way. What of the hardened criminal? Your hardened criminal is not such a problem if his enemy society will treat him with friendliness and kindness. If you frown upon a man, you exile him. If you exile him, how can he live in a community that denies him his bread? There are shadows of our own making and shadows that are made for us. Why not destroy them with a little optimism, a little cheerfulness, a little faith in human nature? I have not been so occupied with men and women who have had long terms in prison as with the short-term prisoners, the accidental criminals. The Magdalens of the street? Why are we always analyzing and condemning the fallen woman, when there is the fallen man to consider as well? Of course I make no distinction as to those I can help, but the fallen man seems to me of greater importance. Because he is the stronger, the loss to the community is the greater, and so the reason of restoring him is more satisfying." Why young men go wrong. The fallen man is redeemable? To begin with, most of our prisons are filled with young men who have done wrong because they had no one to sympathize with their lonely struggles in big cities. 
New York, for instance, is the center of the world's interest. Young men crowd in here from the country, from Europe, from everywhere, to gratify their ambitions, to achieve wealth and success. The little money they bring with them is soon exhausted, and they drift. Drifting is idleness, enforced idleness frequently, and then comes mischief, the temptations of environment, and they get into prison, much as a bird is caught in a trap, and then there is no consoling explanation for them. The prisons have many eager, persevering, industrious young men who are amazed at their own misfortune, at the lack of sympathy which the world shows to the unfortunate. They are condemned, sentenced, and society approves without really judging the merits of the case. Are the fallen men always young? Chiefly, although in the mission rooms, where one sees the utterly disheartened and poverty-stricken specimens, there are many middle-aged men. The middle-aged man finds himself a street wreck, because he has been profligate, and sometimes because he has been the victim of the society that pronounces him an outcast. The outcast and the criminal are not of one source. There is a soul in each of them, equal to the demand of every moral appeal. But how is that appeal usually made? I attended a meeting at the Bowery Mission one very wet night this week. I sang for over five hundred homeless men. They were dirty, hungry, without shelter, without sleep. The odor in the room was stifling, terrible. Well, they were preached to, urged to think of their souls and everlasting punishment for sin. Their poor souls, how could they know where they were, embedded in dirt and pain and starvation of body? When the meeting was over, they went out as they had come in, degraded outcasts of society. Where do you suppose they went? What became of them? Even the lodging houses charge what to them was a fabulous sum, since they had nothing. After nights in the street, and days in hunger and dirt, is it any wonder that they become enemies to law and order? What they need is nourishment, clothes, shelter, that they may have a chance to find out if they really have souls or not. But what of the causes that bring men to such depths? Is there any time to look into the causes of hunger until the man has been fed? It is all in the cruelty of our point of view. If we deny to these men their human right to survive, if we refuse to nourish them unconditionally, how can we hope to lift the outcast back on his feet? You know, after all, outcasts are not born, they are the wounded in battle, and we should extend to them first aid to the injured, without moralizing, but with the practical efficiency of a practical civilization. There is too much of the instinct to punish, too little of the instinct of mercy in the big cities. Is the breadline a sincere appeal of hungry men, or of idle men? Hunger is hunger. It has nothing to do with one's morals. It has to do with the necessities of daily life. If we starve, we die, and it is more important always to live. Problem of the Breadline A man once said to me of this breadline, If I had my way, I would arrest every one of those men and fence them in and put dogs at the entrances to keep everyone away from them. That is the attitude of society toward the outcast. It is because I believe in the inherent good and the existence of a soul in all men and women that I prefer to do what I can for the outcast without asking questions. You do not exempt the criminal from his claim on your charity? The criminal is not always born, if ever. He is the weaker, the less competent, the least capable of survival in the struggle for life. He is not necessarily idle. He is merely short-sighted and singularly at sea for standards and help. The educated man who becomes an outcast is, of course, in greater danger of prison than the uneducated. A college graduate, for instance, drifts through failure to grapple successfully with the bread-and-butter problem into the slums. 
He spends a night or two on the streets, and he starves himself rather than let his friends know that he is in need. Presently he gets into a dreary, wandering state of mind, through exposure and sleeplessness. Is it any wonder that he steals, or falls into some trap that in his normal world, where he started in life, he would have seen clearly and avoided? Just think what a little food and shelter would have done for that poor fellow in time. But a term in prison is the social remedy. It is not the best remedy, if any at all. He spends three, five, seven, twelve years in confinement, and he comes out a sick and broken man. But the world looks at him askance and says, Well, if he will work harder than other men for less pay, perhaps we will reinstate him. Is he fit to work? Has society left him capable of an even footing ever again? He has been badly nourished, kept in the gloom of a stone cell without sufficient exercise, and instead of work he wants help, nursing, quiet, and a bit of hope that is cheerful. Because the doctor tells a patient after a long illness that he can sit up, he does not mean that the man can go to work. The prisons are too severe? As to that, my experience with the ex-convict does not seem to leave much doubt. I have certain plans to test the theory of environment, that the criminologists insist is not so great a cause of crime as heredity. It still seems to me that there is good, much good, in every human being, so I should like to dispose of the idea of the inherited criminal instinct. I have secured from the Salvation Army a plot of ground, 75 acres, at Spring Valley, New York, where I hope to build a home for the children of criminals, a place where they will be brought up to think better of their parents than society does, where they will never be reminded of the shame that is ascribed to them. There they will attend classes in industrial labor, and in this way, perhaps, we shall attack the root and seed of criminal records. It will cost a good deal of money, and I cannot do it all myself. But it is a project in which a committee of the Salvation Army is already interested. The Countess, in quest of her solution of the criminal problem, has been visiting the tomb's prison almost daily. On Sundays, she sings to the prisoners, and as her voice has led to many offers for operatic stage, the prisoners are fortunate. She will always sing only for the outcasts, she says. Her voice and her purse belong to them. What do you sing in the missions? Always old-fashioned hymns, she said with a quiet smile. And what do you talk to the prisoners about? A Countess Visits Prisoners Very quietly the Countess tried to outline the detail of her work. I put my hands through the bars and shake hands with prisoners in their cells. Usually I bring with me some little dainties that they have not had the money to buy. Then I give them magazines and newspapers, but I do not intrude upon their private matters or their cases, unless they offer to talk to me about them. I never talk about religion, I merely make friends, and help the unfortunates to bear the burden as cheerfully as possible. As I left this remarkable countess, with a realization that her Christianity was an unbounded field of charity, she urged upon me her regret that there should be any publicity about herself. Say nothing about me, except that I need clothes for the poor, old clothes. Thanksgiving is coming, and Christmas, and winter, and how I am going to take care of them all, I don't know. End of Work Which a Woman is Doing in the Slums